Well, let us continue in worship this morning by turning in our Bibles to Proverbs. We are looking at the third chapter of Proverbs. We're thinking together this morning about verses 5 through 8. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 8. Listen now to the reading of God's word. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Let us ask the Lord's help this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. And now we need your spirit to be our teacher. Guide us into all the truth. And may we love you more as a result of this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last Lord's Day, we uh, spent our time thinking on the reality that faith, true living faith, produces works. Produces works. We are not saved by works. This is clear in Scripture. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, Paul said categorically, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified Rather, the Bible says, the righteous shall live by faith. This, brothers and sisters, is the work of faith. What we're doing here, we are expressing our faith. This is absolutely clear. We are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. But faith, true, living, saving faith is not a dead thing. It is a living thing. For it is a gift of God. Ephesians 2.8 Last week, we considered two works of faith. First, faith submits to Scripture. And second, faith expresses itself through love. Thank you, Jeff. Faith expresses itself through love. No love, no faith. Do not claim to have faith if you don't have love. It is that critical. This morning, we are giving our attention to the third work of living faith as revealed in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 8. But as we do, let us remind ourselves of a critical hermeneutical principle that we must not forget. The Bible is a Christ-centered book. Who is at the center of all that the Bible says from Genesis to Revelation? I hate to break it to you, it's not you is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the Lord Jesus himself who said about the Old Testament in John 5.39, the scriptures bear witness about me. That is what he said. These diverse 66 books that we call the Bible, Proverbs included, are all drawing our attention and our hearts and our minds to one single person, Jesus Christ, God's incarnate son. It is fitting then that we look at Proverbs with an eye 
to the Lord Jesus, especially as we consider this third work of living faith, which is as follows. Here it is. Faith puts no confidence in the flesh. Faith puts no confidence in the flesh. Throughout the centuries, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ has confessed that faith should be understood as possessing three critical components. Number one, knowledge of the truth. Number two, assent to the truth. And number three, trust upon the truth. This simple means the following. For faith to be true, living faith, for faith to be true, living faith, God's word must reach your ears. You have to know it, for faith comes by hearing, then you must assent to the truth of God's word, meaning you have to believe it, for if you believe, you will be saved. And third, you must entrust yourself to the truth of God's word, meaning you have to rest upon it. You have to rest upon it. Without knowledge, without assent, and without trust, there cannot be any true, living, saving faith. Therefore, when Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 says, trust in the Lord, we are being called to what? Exercise your faith. Exercise your faith. Come and rest your souls. Come and entrust yourselves upon the good and loving Lord. Put all your weight Put all your weight upon him, and while you put all your weight upon the Lord, put no weight upon yourself. Put no weight upon yourself. If you look careful, carefully at our passage, there are two calls being issued here, and they are both happening simultaneously. Both happening simultaneously. The first call is to turn toward And the second call is to turn away from. First, turn toward confidence in God. And second, turn away from confidence in yourself, in yourself. This language reminded me of the rope in a tug-of-war game. How many of you have played that game? It is fun until you lose, right? Tug-of-war If you had a fixed point over which you could see the rope during a tug-of-war, you would notice that the rope is always what? Moving. It's always moving either to the right or to the left. Either to the right or to the left. This movement could be a few inches at a time or several feet in either direction. The point of the illustration is as follows. In a tug-of-war, stillness for the rope is an impossibility. The rope is always being pulled in a definitive direction. Likewise, our faith, likewise, our faith is either growing in the Lord or, God forbid, in yourself in yourself. But the one thing that faith will not do and cannot do is to remain still, passively standing in the middle. But wait a minute, doesn't Psalm 37 verse 7 say, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him? 
Yes, it does. But if by stillness you mean passive inactivity, then no. Then no. Rather, stillness always means active trust. Active trust. Just like the rope in a tug of war cannot be moving in opposite directions at the same time, our faith will either be growing toward the Lord or toward somewhere else, ourselves. You know what the flesh wants? You know what the flesh wants? The flesh craves, desires self-confidence, self-faith, self-reliance. But we are called to trust in the Lord, not in ourselves. Not in ourselves. In the words of Philippians chapter 3, verse 3, we can say it like this. We glory in Christ Jesus on the one hand, and we put no confidence in the flesh on the other. We must glory in Christ Jesus. We must trust him, depend on him, rest upon him, make much of him. And as we do, we put no confidence whatsoever in the flesh or in ourselves. John the Baptist said it best. Christ must increase, but I must decrease. John 30, John 3 verse 30, to which we all say, amen, amen. Now, allow allow me to point out something that is running throughout these verses in Proverbs to which we must pay careful attention. Whatever these verses are calling us to do, it is comprehensive. It is comprehensive. It is total. With all your heart, in all your ways. And this is the call of Jesus upon us, is it not? He does not want to be Lord over certain compartments of your life. He wants all of it. He wants your entire life, including your thinking, your attitudes, your emotions. He wants it all because he's Lord. He is Lord. So here is our first call of faith. We are to trust the Lord. We are to trust the Lord with the totality of our inner being. Our inner being. Verse 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. As we learn from Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, the heart is that from which all the issues of life proceed. When we say that the heart is the control center of life, we actually mean it. It is a reference to the inner man, the invisible side of human existence that controls everything else. The thoughts we have, the experiences, we, the emotions we experience, the attitudes we display, the beliefs we hold to, the decisions that we make, etc. It is all a matter of the inner being, the invisible side of our human existence. The, but the problem is that the heart has a problem. In Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, you know this verse, the heart is trustworthy. Oh, thank you, Jeff, again. Wow, you're on fire today, my friend. (laughs) The heart is deceitful above all things. Deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Your heart. Your heart. Therefore, with the totality of our hearts, we must trust in the Lord. Turn to Genesis chapter 3. Let us consider uh, the example of Eve. Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden. 
And let's take this as a negative case study, a negative case study. Where did things go wrong? Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, Eve tried to reason with the serpent. But notice how she did it. In verse 3, Eve said to the serpent, but God said, after the serpent said, you go ahead and eat it, you shall not eat, Eve said, arguing with the serpent, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. Interesting. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. She reasoned with the serpent but with a modified version of God's original commandment. This slight deviation shows us that Eve had already begun to seek to understand her circumstances apart from a pure and simple trust in what the Lord had said. Having done that, Eve reached three very specific conclusions. Read with me in chapter 3, verse 6. We read this, so when the woman saw, meaning when Eve was awakened to a new vision of her reality, one that directly contradicted God's word, when she saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she did what? She took it. And she ate, and she gave a little bit to her poor husband. Now, did you recognize the three conclusions? The three conclusions. The tree was good to satisfy the cravings of the flesh. It was beautiful to satisfy the desires of the eyes. And it was desirable to satisfy the pride of life. It can make you wise. If you read Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, alongside 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, it is essentially the same. John says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, food, the desires of the eyes, beautiful, and the pride of life, wisdom, it is not from the Father, but it is from the world. Eve fell for that which Satan has been promoting ever since. But why did she fall for it? That is the question we're considering. Why did she fall for it? Because she leaned on her own understanding of her circumstances. You see, everything in the garden, everything was telling her to take of the fruit. The tree was beautiful. The fruit was a delight. And there was wisdom associated with it. In other words, Eve thought, what's not to like? What's not to like? If I am understanding this correctly, she reasoned, the tree is not so bad after all. It can satisfy my hunger. It certainly is very pleasing to the eyes and it will give me wisdom. Plus, there is a talking snake affirming what I believe. <laughs> He's affirming all my conclusions. It must be right. It feels right. It makes sense in my mind. What can possibly go wrong? Eve had one job, one job. Her only job 
was to trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. How? He spoke to her. He spoke to her in Genesis 2, 16 and 17. Of all the trees you may eat except one. She should have said, I will trust in you, Lord. Your word is enough for me, no matter what my feelings, my emotions, my intellect might be telling me at this moment, I will trust in your word, Lord. Your word is good. But Eve, you know what she did? She reasoned her way out of God's word and she fell into darkness. She put her trust in her own ability to understand her circumstances at the moment she abandoned the simplicity of God's word. Essentially, Eve sought to become wise apart from simple trust in God and his word. She sought independent wisdom, and the rest is history, literally, history. Now, does this mean we should not use our understanding at all? May it never be. God gave us an understanding for a reason. Rather, the call of Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5, is to exercise our understanding as people under authority, not autonomously. If there's one lesson that Eve teaches us is that. We must learn what it means to think as people always under authority. That is the essence of the Christian life. Jesus is Lord, we must learn to think as people who are under lordship. Lordship. We must cultivate an understanding based on the truth, on trust in the Lord. Think of a child. Think of a child. How many of you have ever been a child before? Okay, good. Think of a child. At first, you carry the newborn everywhere. Everywhere. Then when the child becomes a toddler and can start walking and running, the child needs to learn. The child needs to learn and understand that your words, if you're the parent, the child needs to understand that your words are his safety. Your words are the child's safety. And that when you say, don't go there or don't do that, you are creating for the child what? A place of security. The child needs to know that his joy, he needs to learn that his joy, his true happiness is within his parents' words. Within his parents' words. The child's understanding needs to conform to his parents' words. The child does have an understanding, by the way. You have seen it. The child does have an understanding, but when the child leans on his understanding, what happens? He gets, he gets into all kinds of serious and dangerous trouble. Just a few days ago, I sat down with someone who has been dealing with much darkness for the last several years. The closest relationships have been pure agony, bitterness, hatred, and division. So I listened for a good while, and after listening for a while, I opened the word to Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. Concerning the deceitfulness of the heart, I read it, and I explained it. Then I said, don't allow yourself to be deceived. 
And the person said, you mean by the people around me? And I said, no, by your own heart. To which the person responded with visible shock, eyes wide open. The person had never heard this. The person told me, I've been told all my life to go with my heart, to trust my heart, trust the way I understand, trust my own understanding. And I said, no, you have been trying to understand life on your own, but you can't. Your heart has been deceiving you for all these years and you've been leaning on it. You need a foundation that you can trust and the Lord is the only one. But isn't this our tendency, especially in times of trials and pain? We try to become our own source of wisdom. We try to become our own counselors, and we quickly forget about the Lord and his word. In this regard, John Owen said very wisely, and I quote, Whenever in our trials we consult with our own understandings, or hearken to self-reasonings, self-reasonings, though they seem to be good and tending to our preservation, yet the principle of living by faith is stifled, and we shall in the issue be cast down by our own counsels, by our own counsels. The Bible doesn't say, let your own wisdom dwell in you richly. Instead, it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. How? How do we dwell? Let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Colossians 3.16. Did you hear that? How can, we, how can we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly? There's no quick approach but there are three key ingredients, fellowship, worship, and thanksgiving. If you want to grow in your trust in the Lord, then you must not neglect these three, fellowship, worship, and always give thanks. Moreover, this is in part what Paul meant in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, when he said, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive. We take every thought captive to do what? To obey Christ. We must learn to think as people under lordship. This is what it means to trust in the Lord and do not lean on your own understanding. We take every thought captive to obey Christ. Whatever thought is raised against Christ and his word, especially any thought coming from within you, you must take that thought captive to obey Christ. So don't let any distrustful, bitter, faithless thought remain in your minds. Instead, the Bible says you must trust in the Lord with all your mind and heart. This is the way of faith. Secondly, we are to not only trust the Lord, but secondly, we are to acknowledge the Lord in the totality of our daily life. We are to acknowledge the Lord in the totality of our daily life. Verse six, in some of your ways, is that what it says? No. I'm just trying to wake you up a little bit. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your 
pass. In your Bibles, please turn to Romans chapter 1. Turn to Romans chapter 1. I want to show you what is one of the central marks, one of the central features of a life of paganism, of the pagan life. This is what sets darkness apart from the light. This is what sets uh, lost people apart from saved people. Paul, of course, having described the wrath of God and how it reveals itself from heaven against the unrighteousness of men, and having drawn a remarkably dark picture of what happens to humanity without God, the Apostle Paul comes full circle in verse 28, and he says the following, And since they did not see fit to, what? Acknowledge. Acknowledge God. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. The people of God, on the other hand, are the ones who in all their ways do what? Acknowledge God. To acknowledge means to have knowledge in a very simple, basic way. To acknowledge means to have knowledge simple enough. Once again, we return to this central biblical idea of the creator-creature distinction. The creator-creature distinction. To acknowledge God is to live as one who recognizes or acknowledges that this is not my world and that I cannot come up with my own rules, but that this is God's world, and therefore we must live under His rules. That's what it means to acknowledge God. The sins listed in Romans chapter 1, including idolatry, homosexuality, and all other manner of unrighteousness, as he says in verse 29, are all the product of denying God His rightful place as supreme over us. He is supreme over us. This is the lack of acknowledgement that Paul spoke about. When you begin to believe the lie, when you begin to begin to believe the lie that you are in charge, serious troubles ensue. Going back to Eve, that was Satan's strategy. That was Satan's strategy to convince Eve that she was in charge of what? of defining reality, defining what is good. Eve, you can define that by yourself, on your own. You need to stop listening to God. You can be autonomous. You can be your own boss. You can define reality for whatever you want it to be. God had already defined reality, hadn't he? He had already defined what is good and what is bad. What was good in the garden? Listen to the word and obey the word. Trust the word. Don't eat of the tree. That is, to eat of the tree is evil. Everything else is good. God had defined reality for Eve. That's what God does. But Satan said to Eve, forget about God's absolute prerogative to determine what is good or bad. Eve, come up with your own rules. Come up with your own rules. Eve, stop acknowledging God. But the problem is, is that God is in charge of all reality. Therefore, in all our ways, we must remember this truth. Now, what does in all our ways mean? It means in all our ways. 
Once again, we are speaking of totality. Totality. Jesus is Lord of all. This means we acknowledge God in the practicality of daily life, in the daily grind, in the daily conversations, in the daily interactions, in the daily choices that we make. But let us be more specific. What does it mean to dress? To dress in a way that acknowledges God. Is there an answer to that? What does it mean to speak in a way, to use our words in a way that acknowledges God? What does it mean to be entertained? Does God have anything to say about our entertainment? You can say yes. He is Lord of all. What does it mean to be entertained in a way that acknowledges God? What does it mean to eat in a way that acknowledges God? If all those questions have an answer, and they do, then we're beginning to understand what it means to acknowledge God in all our ways. But does it have to be so total, so comprehensive, really in all our ways? We, we don't get to, like, small peas of the pie for ourselves? Even the small things? Yes, and here's why. Here's why. This is not going to make sense to you at the beginning. Okay, but here's why. Why we must acknowledge God in all our ways, everything, every detail. All babies are cute. Do we agree? <laughs> all babies are cute. All murderers were babies once. Therefore, option A, all murderers are cute. Option B, all babies are murderers. Well, neither one. The point is this. Murderers were once babies. Simple logic. And a murderer does not become one from one day to the next. Murderers become murderers by an accumulation of events, choices, and circumstances that led up to who they are. Some of these choices were big, but most of them were small. Things that happen in daily life. You know who knew this? Job. Job. Ancient Job. Therefore, Job made a covenant with his eye, with his eyes not to look at a woman. How? with lust in his heart, not to look at a woman lustfully. Why? Why? Because sometimes a small look, small, a small look, a quick glance is the tiny deed that contributes to a great and highly consequential choice. Hence the urgency of Paul when in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 16, he tells us to, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Notice again the intentionality and the comprehensiveness of the language. Take it up. Exercise your faith. Be intentional when, in all circumstances, it is comprehensive. In other words, don't think that small daily choices are utterly inconsequential. In all our ways, we acknowledge God because all our ways matter to God and they matter to the unfolding of our lives. 
all our ways. In all our ways, we acknowledge God means in a practical sense that we, we must be a people of prayer. We must be a people of prayer. As Charles Bridges said, and I quote, no step well prayed over will bring ultimate regret. We must acknowledge God in all things, and that means we must be a people of constant prayer. When you walk acknowledging God, constantly praying to God, recognizing his wisdom, his rule, and his love over you, he makes things straight. This does not mean you won't fall into disappointments or temptations or that you will never make serious mistakes or find yourself in difficult circumstances. But it does mean what Jude meant in his great doxology. In Jude verse 24, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory. God can keep you from stumbling. He can keep you until the end. So the call is to persevere, my brother and sister, and bring, let us bring all areas of life under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And number three, number three, we are to not only trust, we are to not only acknowledge, but number three, we are to fear the Lord, for the totality of our ethical judgments. For the totality of our ethical judgments. Verse 7 and 8. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Being wise in your own eyes is very similar to leaning on your own understanding. The idea is essentially the same. It is to not give God final supremacy over everything, including our thinking. But in verse 7, Solomon makes a more direct statement explaining that self-wisdom, carnal wisdom, is that which prevents someone from making clear ethical judgments. The point being this, if you think, if you, think you are your own determiner of truth, the final arbiter of right and wrong, you are bound to start walking in the way of evil. The solution to this danger is the fear of the Lord. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13 says, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate, says the Lord. Therefore, the way to understand verse 7 is like this. To be wise in your own eyes, to become your own standard of truth will eventually yield sinful ethical behaviors and or judgments. When you set yourself, your own preconceived ideas, your own self-justified beliefs as the greatest measure of truth rather than God's word, then you will begin to justify sin in every other area of your life as well. That's the point being conveyed here. Naturally, the best way to understand what verse 7 means, including its proper application, is by seeing how the New Testament seeks to apply it. So turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 11, and then we'll look at Romans chapter 12. There are two examples that I want to show you as to what it means to be wise in your own eyes. This is how the Apostle Paul understood this. Chat, Romans chapter 11. Now, for the first example... I need to give you a bit of context. The book of Romans was addressed to both Jews 
and also Gentiles. Probably the great majority of them were Gentiles. It was a mixed community. Therefore, questions had arisen regarding the relationship between Jews and Gentiles now that they are both entering the church. It seems clear from chapter 11 that the Gentiles who were now entering as the people of God were starting to misinterpret and misapply their inclusion into the body of Christ. Likely, the Gentiles began to think that their election by God meant the permanent rejection of the Jews, of the Jewish people. This led to a form of spiritual snobbery, spiritual snobbery on the part of the Gentiles against the Jews. So in verse 18, Paul warns them and says, do not be what? Arrogant toward the branches. What are the branches? The Jews, the Jews. The Gentiles thought, as we see in verse 19, that the branches, meaning the Jews, were broken off so that I, meaning Gentile, might be grafted in. In other words, isn't it true, Paul, that the Jews failed to believe in the Messiah and were rejected so that we Gentiles might come in? Isn't it true that we're now better than the Jews? In verse 20, Paul says, affirming what they say in verse 19, that is true. And then he adds, they, meaning the Jews, were broken off, the branches were broken off because of their unbelief, but you Gentiles stand fast through what? Faith. So do not become proud. Instead, do what? Fear. Fear. In other words, do not think that the same thing that happened to the Jews cannot happen to you. And then in verse 25 of chapter 11, Paul says this to the Gentiles. Does it sound familiar? Lest you be wise in what? In your own sight. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The Gentiles were beginning to reach their own sinful conclusion regarding the Jews because they were allowing their own understanding, their own wisdom to dictate what to believe in regards to the Jews. So Paul tells them, lest you be wise in your own eyes, meaning to avoid the risk of letting you come up with your own conclusions about other people, which are clearly sinful conclusions, let me tell you what God says instead. Here's how you ought to think about your Jewish brothers and sisters. Before your self-wisdom leads you into a full-blown spiritual snobbery and prejudice against the Jews, let me stop you right there, says Paul, and call you to submit your understanding to God's revelation. That's what you need. Gentiles, don't allow yourself to be wise in your own estimation. Don't trust your own understandings. Don't reach ethical conclusions regarding the people of Israel by your own reasonings. Rather, Paul says, fear God and understand what he says with regards to the Jews. Once you do that, Paul says, submit to it. It would have been evil for the Gentiles to think they were better than the Jews. Instead, they had to fear God. They had to listen to God. So who would have thought 
the evil of spiritual snobbery comes from a self-determined wisdom which is corrupted by sin. What is the solution? Be not wise in your own eyes. Submit your understanding to God's word. But there's more. There's a second example that comes from Romans chapter 12. First, consider with me verse 2 of Romans 12. Verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be what? Transform. Once again, I want to reinforce what I already mentioned regarding the rope in a tug of war. If you are not being transformed by renewal, what are you doing? What is your option? What is your alternative? You're being conformed to the world. One of these you will do. What you cannot do is pretend to stand in the middle. You're either being transformed by the renewal of your mind, or you will be conformed to the world, but don't pretend to stand in the middle. You are walking in a certain direction. Standing in the middle passively is an impossibility. Having reinforced that, beginning in verse 9, Paul gives very specific practical instructions to the Christian community. Consider verse 9, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Verse 10, love one another. Verse 11, do not be slothful in zeal. Verse 12, rejoice in hope. Verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. What? Bless those who persecute me? Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Verse 16, very important, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be what? Wise in your own sight. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. Verse 18, if possible, be at peace with everyone. Verse 19, never avenge yourselves. Verse 20, feed your enemy. Are you kidding, Paul? Feed your enemy? Verse 21, overcome evil with good? If self-determined wisdom can lead to spiritual snobbery, it can also lead to relational atrophy. Relational atrophy. Given the fact that being wise in one's own eyes is such a broad, all-encompassing concept, I take the inclusion of this command in verse 16 as being foundational for what surrounds it. In other words, blessing those who persecute you, repaying no one evil for evil, feeding your enemy, etc., etc., are all what? They are all expressions of divine wisdom, not a self-determined wisdom. He who is wise in his own eyes will seek to what? Repay evil with what? Not with good, but with evil. Avenge yourself. That is self-wisdom. If you're wise in your own eyes, you will seek to repay evil with evil. Avenge yourself. Hate your enemy. Don't feed him. But God's wisdom says differently. Therefore, be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. What does that mean? David knew what this meant. In his own self-determined wisdom, he decided to keep his sin of adultery with Bathsheba to himself rather than confessing it. In his own eyes, this was better. But after being confronted by Nathan, David said this, When I kept silent, my bones did what? 
They wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. Psalm 32, 3 and 4. True blessing, true joy, true peace are found in the sphere of childlike trust in the Lord. You submit to his word, you believe it. The Lord tells us that if we confess with our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Your self-determined wisdom may tell you to keep it to yourself, never confess your sin, but this will only expose you to the cruelties of anxiety and sinful fear. Rather, we trust in the Lord and therefore we confess. So let me finish here. If it was up to you, If it was up to you, how would you save the world? How would your own wisdom be displayed in saving men from their sins and restoring the peace of the world? Political power, perhaps? Military strategy, maybe? Social reform, possibly? Self-wisdom. Self-wisdom operates like that. It is guided by the eyes, the flesh, and pride. Carnal wisdom trusts in horses. Carnal wisdom trusts in horses. True faith is different. And for the following reason, consider the gospel. God displays his wisdom in that he saved the world, not through military might, not through political power, not through social reform, but through death. This is the wisdom of God through the weakness of the cross of Jesus. God saves the world. In the greatest irony of all of them, the tree in the Garden of Eden, consider this, the tree in the Garden of Eden was good for food. It was beautiful to the eyes. It was useful to make one wise, at least according to Eve's understanding. And yet that tree brought death. Her heart deceived her. But there was another tree. There was another tree. This one was located in a place called Golgotha. This tree had no attraction. No attraction whatsoever. In fact, the only thing on this tree was a man named Jesus shedding his blood, suffering until the end, dying. And yet in the wisdom of God, the tree brings life. And against all human understanding, against all human wisdom, against all human philosophies, against all human ideas, through that blood, through that death on that tree, through that apparent weakness, God brought definitive salvation to us. Your understanding may say that is not possible. How can a man dying on a tree be my savior? But that is the wisdom of God. So we are not wise in our own eyes. Rather, we trust in the wisdom of the Lord. And upon Jesus crucified and risen from the dead, we rest. So do you see faith at work in you? Do you see faith at work in you? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this um, simple reminder and yet so critical. Sometimes we read this passage as Lord and we skip over them or read them quickly for we know them by memory and we have heard, heard them so many times. 
trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, and yet we forget that this is precisely the heart of our battle. This is precisely where we struggle. And so help us not to think of this as a basic call, but it is the central call to continue to learn, to persevere in what it means to trust you with all our hearts and not be wise in our own eyes. Help us to confess our sins and to come to you with childlike faith and to know what it means to be refreshed and to be safe in your arms. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.